Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Glad to hear that. Happy week of Thanksgiving. Um, if you guys don't know, earlier this year, we started a, a group called Rise, which is for our fifth and sixth graders. Um, and last night, we had an event with them where we went to that Brick City here in Springfield. It's like a big Lego place. And something really cool happened, and I need to share it with all you guys. One of, we made these cars and we raced these Lego cars, and one of the, the young ladies in the class said, I want to make a, a car that has a flush toilet in it. And I think that's brilliant. I mean, that's amazing. She made this car. She made a toilet out of gold pieces, which is even better. Um, and she showed it to the guy that owns the place, and he loved it so much he put it in their display case. So if you guys go to this uh, Brick City, you could see a golden toilet that one of our very own Emmaus students made and is now currently on display for the world to see. There are so few things in life to be that trump how wonderful and proud we should be of that truly in our lives. So when people say, where do you go to church? You could say, Emmaus. They go, where's that? Oh, it's the place that has that toilet on display at the, uh, at the Lego store. I think they'll know exactly what it is. Um, what a beautiful time of worship this morning. I mean, it's just, I love that song, It Is Well. And Quinlan, what a beautiful job uh, you, you leading that song and just... It, you know, what a blessed hope and assurance that it is well with our soul, that we are forgiven, we do walk with the King of Kings, and that we come to him. That's what he offers. He offers this blessed hope and how incredible that is uh, that we get to walk in that this morning. Um, so just to recap, we're going to be starting to wrap up the book of Titus, believe it or not. Remember, we, Pastor Ron and I both told you this was going to be a quick uh, sermon series. I'm going to preach today on Titus 3, 1 through 8. Pastor Ron's going to finish the book next week, and then the week after that, it's the Christmas play. So make sure that you've got your list, you're checking it twice, and uh, Christmas is going to be upon us before we know it. But if we can remember, just a very brief recap... This is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a Greek convert, likely converted under Paul's ministry. Um, and they had planted this church on the island of Crete. And if you know where Crete is, it's an island, and there's a lot of ports around it. And Paul had high hopes that the church on this island would grow um, so that the surrounding area would encounter Jesus through its accessibility to the world around it. And, but there were some problems the church was having. So Paul addresses early in the letter um, about the importance of, of appropriate uh, theology and teaching and doctrine. And he talks about why elders are important in the church. And he communicates how our lives are supposed to be inside of our homes and what our homes are supposed to look like as Christians and believers. And Paul wants believers to act and grow in these specific ways because he knows that the gospel message of Jesus to the people on the island of Crete would be attractive to them if they saw these men and women worshiping the Lord and walking in the freedom that they find in Christ. And if you can remember, in the last two weeks, we kind of talked about how when we encounter Jesus, we need to walk in this real transformation as opposed to a list of rules that becomes legalism. And as we wrapped up chapter 2 in the book of Titus last week, we see Paul encouraging Titus to pass on these teachings with all of authority and even rebuke with authority. So Paul, in this book so far, has addressed Titus. He's addressed the leaders of the church, and he's addressed the homes of believers. But now he's going to take an even bigger picture, and he's going to focus on the individual believers. And as we enter this last chapter in this book of Titus... Paul is turning his attention to the believers and what their place is in their greater culture, in the Cretan culture. 
Paul knows that the, the struggle that converts on this island would encounter when they encounter tri- Christ, because Christ is going to transform these men and women, and the way they act is going to be different or counter to the culture that they live in. But Paul's not really scared of that. If we've got a model for transformation in Scripture, it's him. He's one that has walked in this and knows what comes with that territory. But Paul also knows that walking this transformed life is not something that we just do by ourselves and we do alone. He knows that only one can sustain the transformation. For lack of a better term, he he knows that the batteries uh, of this transformation is none other than the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's about to make his final instruction to Titus, and there's one major goal he has as he's wrapping up this book that the church of Jesus Christ should be an agent of transformation. And this transformation is not done through a culture war, yelling and screaming and shaking our fists, or an assimilation to the culture that we live in. Rather, if we wisely walk and participate in the culture that we live in, being in the world but not of it, and we devote our lives to the teachings of Jesus, we see what Titus chapter 2, verse 10 says, that that will show the beauty of the message about our saving God. So with this in mind, let's jump into Paul's final instruction to Titus and his exhortations to the church, which is found in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It reads, Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do, whatever it, to, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. That's a hard one. Verse 3, at one time we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly approach your throne this morning, knowing in full confidence, Lord, that it is well with our soul, that your magnificent work on the cross such a beautiful, loving act as your blood shed, it washed our sins. It made us whole. It brought us back into communion and relationship with you, O oh Father. So, Lord, as we approach your word, this letter to Titus this morning, I pray that you would do something in each of us, Lord, that only you can do. That, Holy Spirit, the things that you've been tugging on our heart or putting in our mind over these last days, weeks, months, or even years, Lord, you would water that today, and those things would grow in our lives, God, and through it, we would grow closer to you. Jesus, we commit our ways to you this morning. We commit our time to you this morning, and we trust you in all things. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. As as many of you know, uh, I worked in the recovery field for about 
uh, a decade, and if you've ever worked with anybody dealing with recovery, you'll probably have a lot of very interesting stories. Um, there's a lot of times I would preach uh, at different churches in the area, and they'd say, hey, tell us a story. I'd be like, I don't know that you really want one of my stories, because what I think is funny and what I think is humorous, I don't know that you're going to think is very funny and humorous at all. You see, dealing with folks that are in addiction uh, is, is challenging on a lot of levels. And when the people that I worked with came into our care, they were not wanting to change. Have you ever worked with somebody who you know the answer to the problem, you know the things that they need to do in their life, but they don't want to hear it, right? You guys all been there before? You've worked with some people like that? Um, it's difficult, and I don't really blame them, because what our goal was in a discipleship setting was to pray and intercede to them, but to take them to a place where they didn't think was valuable to be. Right? It's like you know, you know what, what the, the best thing for them is, but they don't want to go. It's like leading a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And what you're met with when, you, when someone encounters truth is you're really met with two choices or two options. The first is when you encounter this truth, you either go, you know what, I do need to change whatever's happening in my life, and I need to you know, turn from my ways and grow, or it's like, you're wrong because everything I'm doing is amazing and incredible and I love every minute of it, so I'm just going to dig in and I'm just going to run harder and faster than I did before. Okay, you guys agree with that maybe, right? Um, and it's really because in these instances, the folks that I was working with, um, they didn't really see the repercussions yet of what they were doing. There's like a wake, if you will. If you've ever seen a boat, it leaves a, a wake in, in the water. And when you're dealing with folks that we were working with, there's a wake that's left, and they don't even pay attention to it, really. They don't even understand yet what's happening. So we had to become very intentional in everything that we did with these young people. So we surrounded them with intentionality, with points, and with purpose. So if we woke them up early one morning and we went for a run or a workout, there was a reason why we did it. We were trying to create disciplines in their lives. If we ran a half or a full marathon with them, it's because we wanted them to recognize that when you put your mind to something that's incredibly difficult and surround yourself with like-minded people, you can get from point A to point B. You know, sometimes these young people just needed a win in their lives. I think some of us at times just need a win in our lives. But one of my favorite things we did was we would take mission trips with our, with our young people. And the mission trips, they thought, was just like a time for vacation, right? So we once took a trip to Swaziland for two weeks. I don't know why they thought that was a vacation. That was like really hard work. Um, we would go into the Tenderloin District in San Francisco, which is where men and women just shoot up heroin in the street. It's just a really rough area. Um, or we'd be in the Bronx or Brooklyn or Queens. And one time we w went to a homeless shelter in New York City called the Bowery. It's one of the oldest missions in the United States, oldest nonprofit in the United States. We'd hand out food. We'd hand out blankets. And I'll never forget, there was a gentleman who was walking up to the building, and we gave him a blanket. And when he got the blanket, he said, hey, thank you for giving this to me. Now I don't need to sleep inside there. We're like, what are you talking about? He goes, if I sleep in there, I can get beat up. I could be raped. There's all sorts of things that can happen. It's safer for me to sleep on this bench out here with this blanket than it is for me to go in there. And your heart breaks when you hear these stories. And there was a time on one of these trips where our students are hearing these stories and they're seeing these things. And one night we went to Madison Square Garden where the Knicks play, where the Rangers play. There's all sorts of concerts and stuff that happen in there. 
And the guy that was leading us, I kept questioning, like, why are we going to Madison Square Garden? I don't understand why we're going there. Because I've been there a number of times. I've never seen homeless people really around there or anything. And he said, you just got to trust me. So we go to Madison Square Garden. We get out of this van. We've got um, hot pockets in this big cooler, like tons of hot pockets. And we have tons of blankets. And everybody's distracted by the garden, like, you know, one of the greatest sporting venues uh, in the world. And as everybody kind of enjoyed looking at the garden, they started realizing when they took their eyes away from it that there were benches and there were mailboxes around. And under the mailboxes and under the benches, there's homeless wrapped up in newspapers sleeping under them. And admittedly, I had been there, I can't tell you how many times, and I'd never seen men and women sleeping in these places. And your heart breaks, and we'd give them food, we'd give them blankets, and without fail, right, the students, the guys we were working with, they thought they were on vacation, but we knew what was going to happen. These young people started seeing these men and women in these situations, they were asking, how did you get here? And these men and women started sharing their life story and saying, you know, I had all this promise in the world. I went to college. I did these things, but I let things into my life. I started using. I started making these mistakes, and ultimately led them to a place where they are today. And there was a moment one time where I was sitting back, and I was letting this gentleman, you know, share his story with the people that we were with, and I remember this one of our students looked at me and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah. And I pulled him aside, and I said, what's going on? And he said, I need to make some changes in my life. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, because if I don't, that's going to be me. See, there was a point and a purpose. We wanted to show them what they didn't want to know. We wanted to show them that there was an end to the life that they were living. And truthfully, it was exciting when we saw these young people realize, I need to make changes in, in my life. And they did. And they started to grow, and they started to have vision and hope for their lives. But without fail, every single time, These guys got their lives together. It was time for them to go home, right? They weren't supposed to be with us forever. That was not the goal of what our ministry and mission was. They they needed to go on and, and live their lives. And it's tough because you see these young people that are radically transformed for Jesus, and they would start pouring back into the newer students, and then they were gone. They left. They went home. Al Toledo is a pastor out of uh, Chicago. He's a pastor of Chicago Tabernacle, and he put a series out called The DNA of a Leader, and he said something in it that really has kind of stuck with me um, for a bit. He said, every person in every church has a spiritual temperature, okay? Now, remember, we've talked about legalism the past few weeks, so don't start thinking and putting, you know, temperatures on people, all right? Like, you know, our elder Bill, he's boiling water, man. He's like 212 degrees. But, you know, Danny, he's only 208 degrees. You know, he's got, don't do that, okay? Don't do that, all right? But he makes this point to say that every person, every church has a spiritual temperature. And if a church has 500 people all on fire for the Lord, it's a beautiful thing. But if the church grows to, let's say, 700 people, and those 200 new people are all new believers, their spiritual temperature is going to be lower, So you've grown the church, but the temperature has gone down, which means you have to be very intentional to pour in and disciple the new men and women who have given their heart to Jesus to raise their quote-unquote spiritual temperature. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about our ministry for those 10 years because it's like we had this perpetual pot that was on a stove that we were trying to get to boil, and it represented all the young people that came into our care. And there's times that water would be really boiling, but then they would leave and they would go home. And it was like taking a big scoop of water out of it and replacing it with an ice tray. Does that make sense? 
So these guys would get it, they would leave, and then the next day a new person would come in and you have to start this whole process over. And honestly, there's times that you want to skip steps. There's times you want to jump over things because the work is kind of exhausting, to be really honest with you. But there was, every once in a while, we would have young people who finished the program, had lived their life really well, had graduated high school. Some of them even went to college, and then some of them wanted to come back and work for us. And that was a really cool moment when that happened. But without fail, after their training and after their first week on their shifts, I would take them out to lunch. And I'd go, how's everything going? And without fail, they go, these kids are crazy. <laughs> and then the key phrase, I was never like that. I was like, bro, you were worse. <laughs> you don't even know crazy. You were crazy. That kid is easy. You were crazy, right? And I share that because that's exactly what Titus chapter 3, verse 3, what Paul is saying to Titus. He's saying, at one time, you too were foolish. You were disobedient. You were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You know, truly, it's a miracle that we get to see those walked in life transformation, those who have encountered Jesus. But Paul is instructing Titus on something very important here. He's saying, don't lose your empathy for the lost. He's saying, remember, you were that way before you encountered Jesus. You know, who here hasn't been foolish? One time, uh, my brother and I went to this music festival, which was a big deal for my brother, because my brother just likes, like, orchestrated music and, like, marching band music. He's, he's a, he plays the trumpet. He's a very traditional dude. So he likes kind of old school stuff, but I got him convinced to go to this music festival called Creation East, if you guys ever heard of that. If you were a product of the 80s and 90s and you lived out west or out east, it was like a big event, and they had two stages. The main stage, that was for the real Christian music, like uh, the Newsboys or like Carmen. Like that's who would be on those stages. But then the alternative stages where I was at, those were like the chaos people. You know, those were like Project 86 or like the Supertones, the real bad boys of Christian music in the 80s and 90s. And we went there, you know, my, our elder Bill one time was sharing, sharing with us that he went to the Creation Music, not the Cornerstone Music Festival and with his kids and where they camped. Cornerstone was like all metal bands and they said they were camped in the middle of all, the, all these metal stages and they woke up one morning to just death metal screaming at them. And Bill said he got up and he said, where are we at the gates of hell? What is going on here? You know, so it's kind of complicated, some of these contrasts. But my brother agreed with me to, to go to this. And it was neat because if you've ever been to Pennsylvania, the landscape of Pennsylvania is a lot of mountains. And they had this trail. It took like an hour to hike this trail. And you could get up to the top of this mountain and you could see out over everything. It was absolutely beautiful. So we wanted to do this. We did this hike, got to the top of the mountain, and we said, hey, there's a show that's starting in a little bit. We really wanted to get to the stage. I can't remember who was playing. And we said we had two options to get down this mountain. One is to go the way that we came, but it would take about an hour to do it. Or the second, if, you, if we looked out, we noticed that a ton of men and women were very gingerly walking down the side of the mountain, like very slowly, okay? Um, so it was a much faster route, but it was a little dangerous. And everybody was like real tiptoeing. Everybody looked kind of funny, actually, the way that they were walking. And on the mountain, on the side of the mountain, they were like downed trees, if you know what I mean, like a classic like movie tree where there's like a stump and a big tree like kind of leaned over. You guys follow me? You guys understand what I'm saying, right? They had a bunch of those, and at the base of it was a straight-up forest. 
So I was like, Anthony, let's, let's just shoot down this hill, man. And he's like, all right, cool, let's do it. And I started making fun of all the people because of how they look, because they were like hopping along and being real careful. I'm like, oh, look at me, I'm being careful. Now, most of you know me, I'm not a science guy, but I know that objects in motion stay in motion. I started picking up speed going down this mountain, and in my head, I'm like, this is the day that I die. Because, and I'm like, my brother's gonna have to call my mom because I'm, I'm picking up speed, I'm looking at the base, there's a forest, I'm like, I'm dead if I go there. And, and you can't just stop because you're picking up so much speed. So in my head, I think the only thing that will save my life is to run into one of these downed trees. That's the only thing that's going through my head. And I'm like, I have to do this. So I start like shifting my weight to like start going towards one of these trees. And man, I hit it. And I looked like Bugs Bunny. I had to. My hands went over it. My legs went under it. And I fell back. I feel like Mike Tyson punched me in the stomach. And as I'm like sucking in air, like... <gasps> All I could hear is my brother laughing at me. And he's like, serves you right, man. Right? I mean, he's just making fun of me. I was so foolish. I will never do that again. And nor will I make fun of someone who does that because that I've been it. I will warn them against the foolishness that's coming. But ultimately, we've all been foolish, have we not? We've all been crazier than we'd like to admit. We've all been disobedient. I've had detention in my life. We've all been deceived and enslaved by all kinds of pleasures and passions. We lived in malice and envy, and I hate to admit that there's times that I've hated people. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a miracle that we get to walk in, which is the freedom that we find in Jesus, but let our hearts not grow cold to those who don't know him yet. Empathy for a believer is important, because it is the quality that births compassion. And so many times in the Gospels, we see Jesus moved with compassion before he performs a miracle. It is, a, it is something that we as believers need to grow in our lives. Both times in the book of Matthew, when Jesus feeds the multitudes, in Matthew 14 and in Matthew 15, he is moved with compassion. The blind man in Matthew 20 and the leper in Mark chapter 1 are healed because when Jesus sees them, he is moved with compassion. He uses the same word three different times in his parables. From the king who gives compassion on his bankrupt servant and forgives his debt in Matthew 18, to the good Samaritan in Luke 10, and to the father who Pastor Ron preached on last week who had compassion for his rebellious son who came home in Luke chapter 15. We must walk in empathy and compassion for the lost because it is the fundamental and distinctive quality of God that took you from where you were and brought you into the arms of our Heavenly Father. And I praise God for that. It is for the love of this world that no one would be lost that brought Jesus down to this earth to live a sinless and perfect life and to stand in the gap for you and me as he hung on the cross. Remember, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But John 3, 17 says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn it, but through it it might be saved. All Jesus is doing is stretching out his arms, letting us know that we cannot let our hearts grow cold to the lost of this world. The lost will always do things that will rub against every fiber of your spiritual being. They'll say hurtful things. They'll walk in destructive lifestyles. They'll live a life that is so far from 
the King of Kings. But we need to remember that we were there once too. We walked the same miles. We had the same pair of shoes. We did the same things. But by the grace of God, we've been saved. It's crazy to think that a math teacher would welcome a new class into their uh, school year, knowing that they don't know anything that they're about to teach, and work the whole year to let these young people learn algebra or geometry, whatever it is that they might be learning, to see them all graduate, and then to start the next year with a new group of students and be mad at the new students for not knowing what the ones who graduated know. That's crazy to think that. How do you not know A squared plus B squared plus Q squared? I don't know. I was watching TV all morning. I don't know what that is, right? You ha we have to take time to appropriately disciple and raise up people who don't know the Lord. And that's the same idea that Paul is saying, remember where we were so we can have empathy when others are where you have been. And we have to remember, too, that in that, as I just mentioned, there's this spiritual warfare that's going on. There's this antichrist spirit that exists. A couple of years ago, my wife had to have back surgery. She had, she had to have a disectomy, so part of her spine had to get shaved off. It was really a crazy uh, time. Um, and I remember if you guys have ever been through surgery or watched someone go through surgery, at least here in Missouri, we went to the hospital early, early in the morning when our surgery date was, and then they take you through like a bunch of paperwork and you have to sit down with the insurance people and everything. And I remember we were finishing the insurance stuff and this woman asked us, she goes, how are you guys feeling about surgery today? And both my wife and I were like, you know what? It's in the Lord's hands. We're gonna trust him with it. And I'll never forget this. It was this deeply spiritual moment. This woman looked at us and go, oh, you, you talk to God? I was like, you don't, right? Because, like, if you guys know me, there's, like, a dog in me that's like, oh, are we going to do this? We're gonna do, you want to do this right now at 4 o'clock in the morning? You want to do this right? Because I'll, I'll do this all day long, right? Like, I have this, like, spirit in me. It's like, we're going to have a serious conversation, and you're going to find out that there is a king. You know, I had all this stuff. And I start getting worked up, and my wife just, she's the one going in for surgery. She puts her hand in me. She's like, no. Okay, babe, I love you, but I just need you to know it's because I love you that I'm not going to do this, okay? But you better, right? But ultimately, she knew what we're fighting is not that woman. You almost have to move her aside and recognize there's spiritual warfare taking place. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. But there's a darkness that is in this world, and it is lying, and it is deceiving all sorts of people. And when I realized that... I recognize that this woman is clearly not living a life that's been transformed by Jesus, and that's what really bothers me. What bothers me is not what she said. What bothers me is the spirit that's behind it, and instead of us getting angry in these situations, what it should drive us to do as believers is intercede and pray for them. You would be astonished at how different your day would be if you started it with prayer, and in that time of prayer, you asked the Lord, Lord, Put in my path whatever it is you want for me today and equip me for it. Help me be ready for it so that when it comes, I know how to respond. And then ultimately, it's not us responding. It's the Holy Spirit responding in us. We need to be careful to not allow friction to come between you and the world because we're not fighting against them. We're fighting this spiritual warfare. But Paul doesn't stop in verse 3. He continues uh, in verses 4 through 7, 
And it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. See, it starts with that word, but. I love it, right? So that means that we have to remember what happened before it. He was saying we were, we were all this way. We were foolish. We were deceived. We hated. We were hated. We did all these things. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. We don't deserve it. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And church, I love that passage because it so eloquently describes the Trinity and the reality of our salvation. Eddie, if we could leave this up here, that'd be great. Um, What's interesting is when you find this in its original context, these four verses were actually, in the original Greek, written like a poem. So everything here has a very deep meaning. So when the love and kindness of God our Savior showed up, it brings salvation. When Jesus came to this earth, he brought salvation. And that salvation is not received because of something that we did. We can't earn it. Rather, out of the mercy and compassion of God the Father, wanting to be in communion with his creation. And the next part in this is especially important in its context because it says, and he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And that's really important because if you guys remember, we talked about the law a little bit these last few weeks. In Jewish custom and tradition, there was clean and there was unclean. And, for th- and if you're unclean, you could not commune with God. But there were rituals. There were things that you could do to become clean again. So what Paul is saying here is that through Jesus, he saved us. His salvation is what cleans us to enter into communion with the King of Kings. That Christ's ultimate sacrifice made us clean, that we could be with the Father. And something beautiful happens, and this is something that I want us all to just dwell on and think about as we're going through this week, as we're going through these holiday seasons, is that when we have accepted Jesus, he cleanses us from our sins, he brings us into his kingdom, but as we enter his kingdom, we are adopted into his sonship. We are adopted into his daughtership, and with that adoption comes a birthright. And this birthright is something that I want everyone who doesn't know Jesus to be a part of, because this birthright is backwards from the way the world works. If you guys think about it, if a, if a family or an individual or a husband and wife, if they've amount, uh, amassed wealth and property and business and all these different things, uh, a lot of times they'll leave that behind when they pass. They'll leave what's called a will or a trust, and I'm not going to get into the differences of those, although I like knowing the differences of those things because I worked with those for a while in the banking world. Um, but ultimately, it's a set or a list of rules of what's going to happen to all of an individual's assets upon them passing. And anybody who's been around this stuff for any period of time would recognize that most people who are in a will or in a trust don't want more people listed in it because that means there's less of the pie for them. Am I right or am I wrong? Right? Well, I mean, you know, Timmy, he's a part of this, and I don't know why he's a part of it because he's only our half-brother, right? It gets into these whole dark things. But with, with these birthrights, with these, with these trusts or wills, there's some things that come with it, Right? So when 
someone passes, like an elderly person, a young person, whatever it is, when they, whenever they pass, what's left behind is divvied up amongst the people that it was asked to be given to. Money, property, business holdings, stock options, so on. You name it, it's, it's all probably in there. And this is usually mapped out in these deeds or trusts. And honestly, I've been around this long enough to know that there's usually arguing and fighting that happens when this happens as well. As a mortgage lender for a number of years, when people passed and left their houses, if there was a mortgage on it, I was like, this is going to be a headache for a long time. And it always was. Some of them lasted six or eight months to be able to navigate some of these things. But in the kingdom of heaven, that's not how it works. There's not X amount to go around. There's enough for everyone. You see, as we're born into this world, we are sinful. And Scripture clearly states in Romans 6.23 that what we deserve for that sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. But the kingdom of heaven is different. When we accept Jesus into our lives, we all receive forgiveness. We all receive freedom. We all receive hope. And we all inherit eternal life. So we should not be holding on to this gift of salvation and keeping it to ourselves, thinking that there's not enough of it to go around because there's plenty of it to go around and it should be something we are joyfully sharing with everyone we come in contact to. Ephesians 1, 4 through 14 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for, what is that word? Adoption. To sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through what? His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, so these are the first century Christians, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to, praise, to the praise of his glory. Church, there is enough of God to go around. Someone was excited to share the gospel with my family, with each of you, and they said, hey, welcome. There's always food in the fridge. There's always food on the table. Come and sit at the table with the King of Kings. But truthfully, myself included, sometimes we complicate the message of the cross. A few days ago, I played this game on my phone called Letterbox. You guys, anybody play Letterbox? Nobody? Well, cool, I'm alone on that. That's fine. What it is, is a box. It's a square. And there's three letters on each side of the square. And the goal is to use all the letters and to spell out words. That's it. It's really simple. I just like to get my brain active on something that's not reading, just, you know, engage it in a different way. And uh, you, there's rules with this box. You have to use all the letters. You have to do it in under a certain amount of words. Sometimes it's four words. Sometimes it's five words. 
Um, you can't use a letter in succession that is on the same side of the box. So if there's like a T and an H on one side, you can't put them together. You got to just pick one and then go to another side of the box and you can come back to it. And the hardest part of it is whatever word you spell, whatever the last letter of that word is, has to be the first letter of the next word that you spell. Okay? Simple. Fun. You should check it out. It's a good time. But I was sitting down one day. I was sitting on the couch and I was staring at my phone trying to figure out. I had four words done. I had two letters left, and I could not figure out how to use these last two letters. And I was thinking of every complicated word you could possibly imagine. And my son sits down next to me. He's like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to figure out this stupid thing. I don't know. It's bothering me. I can't figure it out. He goes, let me, let me take a look at it. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, let's see what you got, you know? But he looks at it, and he goes, oh, boom. And he throws a word out, and he finishes it, like in two seconds. And it was a three-letter word. And it finished the whole thing. And I'm laughing. I go, you got to be kidding me. And he just looks at me and goes, I got you, Dad. You know, gave me knuckles and then kind of did whatever else he was doing. I'm like, dude, that's hilarious, right? And honestly, it convicted me, truthfully. It really convicted me. Because I think there's a lot of times that I complicate the message of the cross. I complicate my walk with the Lord, thinking that it needs to be riddled with spiritual disciplines or it needs to be riddled with X amount of prayer time. And we talked about this in our spiritual disciplines class on, on Wednesday nights, that sometimes we can approach the Lord as like, if I only do all of these things, I can earn enough spiritual tokens to put it in the vending machine and finally get the spiritual Snickers I've been wanting. And that's not really how that works. You know, the disciplines, Richard Foster even talks about spiritual disciplines. He says they don't do anything. What they do is get you to a place and create an environment around you where the Holy Spirit can actually do something in you. It puts us in this place of submission. But truthfully, we cannot overcomplicate the message of the cross. You know, we deserve death, but now we have life. And there's nothing that we could do or pay to receive this free gift. All we have to do is accept it. Billy Graham was once quoted saying this. He quoted first 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, which reads, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he went on to say, I remember preaching in Dallas, Texas, early in our ministry. It was 1953. Many thousands attended each night, but one evening only a few people responded to the appeal to receive Jesus Christ. Discouraged, I left the platform. A German businessman was there, a devout man of God. He put his arm around me and said, Billy, do you know what was wrong tonight? You didn't preach the cross. And he was right. The next night I preached on Christ and his sacrificial death for us, and a great host of people received Christ as Savior. When we preach Christ crucified and risen, that message has a built-in spiritual power. The Holy Spirit takes a simple message of the cross with its theme of redemptive love and grace and infuses it with authority. This supernatural act of God's spirit breaks down barriers in people's hearts. So whether you're preaching with actions or words in your home, your neighborhood, or workplace, be sure that you're preaching the cross. The spirit will be at work. If the worship team could start making their way up here. You know, Paul ends his teaching or this, this section of our teaching this morning in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. He's saying the message of the cross, the salvation that is only found in Jesus, that we were once sinners, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Church, as I read through 
this passage and been praying for it for a couple of weeks and processing what the Lord was wanting to share with us today, I could not get the word empathy and compassion out of my mind. And a desire for us as believers and as a church to intercede and go deeper, to pray for our community, to pray for our family members, our children, our parents, any of them that don't know who Jesus is. And truthfully, church, if we want to see our community changed, if we want to see our families changed, if you want to see the work environment that you work in changed, if you want to see your children come back home, if we want to see this world change, then we have to make the message of the cross, the simple message of salvation, central in everything that we do. We have to walk in this amazing grace that is afforded to us through Christ Jesus, a grace that saved a wretch like you and like me, that we were once lost, but we're now found, and we were once blind, but now we see. So as we close, church, I want you to pray about these three questions, and let's seek the Lord on them. The first is, do you have empathy and compassion for the lost? Or do you find yourself frustrated with people who you encounter who don't know you or say things that might be rude or offensive? But two, do you trust the message of the cross? Is it really that simple? Yeah, it is. Come to Jesus and there's forgiveness. And lastly, this is for those who maybe are here and going, I've heard about this Jesus, but I want to know more about him. This question of, have you been adopted into the kingdom of heaven? If you don't know Jesus this morning, church, I would love to tell you more about him. I could tell you the greatest decision you will ever make is committing your life to him. It's not, there's nothing that you could do that you have to clean up before you come to the cross. Just come to him and say, I'm willing. Teach me, show me, mold me, shape me. So Jesus, we come before you this morning knowing that it is because of compassion for your creation that you came down and set us free. Jesus, grow that in us this morning. Grow in us this heart that beats only for you, but has this passion and desire to share what you've done, Lord, to those that you want us to share it with, Jesus. Let us be one beggar sharing with another beggar where we found bread. Lord, I thank you for saving my life, cleaning me up and bringing me home. Lord, you don't want to stop there. You've got so much more to do. So, Jesus, we pray that you would use us in mighty ways, Jesus, not for Emmaus' namesake or glory, Lord, but that yours would be the glory. So, Jesus, we trust you this morning, and we give this time to you. We ask this in your son's name.